I'd rather win a Pulitzer Prize than be president of the United States. John F. Kennedy confided to author Margaret Coit shortly after his election to the United States Senate in 1953. According to writer David Stokes, former President Kennedy got his wish in 1957. JFK's Ghost is the title of Stokes' book, which examines how John Kennedy won the Pulitzer Prize for his bestseller, Profiles in Courage. David Stokes, what is a Pulitzer Prize? A uh, Pulitzer Prize is a, a, a major award, the highest award in journalism and in writing, literary, and a couple of other fields that uh, harkens back to the turn of the 20th century. It was uh, it was really funded by Joseph Pulitzer, uh, but also uh, by a donation he made to Columbia University, and it comes out of Columbia University in New York. And it is a prize given for various levels, and then the grouping has, has grown over the years, History and literature, fiction, nonfiction, biography. It is sort of the uh, the gold standard, I think. Uh, you know, it's the gold medal of, of writing, I suppose. And uh, much sought after, uh, coveted by authors. It, 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 it certainly uh, gives someone credibility. In the case of uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy with Profiles and Courage, it was a major piece uh, that became part of his persona when he ran for the presidency in 1960. Who decides who wins? Uh, there's a committee, uh, a standing committee that uh, meets in a uh, in a room at Columbia University, uh, the World Room, as they've called it over the years, and uh, they have entrants. You know, the many books are proposed. Publishers send copies of books, like book awards tend to do, and then they whittle it down. They have committees and subcommittees whittling down each particular category. In the case of Bagri, for instance, in 1957, they whittled it down to five finalists, and they were meeting in May of 1957 to vote on the finalists for biography uh, that year. And when John F. Kennedy got the Pulitzer Prize, what was the backstory on whether or not he was picked by the original committee? Yeah, he wasn't even, his book, Profiles and Courage, wasn't even in the five finalists. Uh, but in, in, an, in an anecdotal conversation at the table, just before they voted on, on giving the prize to another author, one of the committee members raised his hand and, and said he had uh, recently read Profiles of Courage, even read part of it to his own child. And he sparked a conversation. And in a, in a classic, I think, I guess you could call it groupthink, maybe uh, that sounds a little bit to, maybe too sinister. I don't think it was quite like that. Uh, pretty soon, he the crowd came around, the men around the table came around, and uh, before you knew it, the prize went, instead of to the five finalists, one of the five finalists went to Profiles and Courage by John Fitzgerald Kennedy. How do you think that happened? Well, I think it happened, and the case I make in the book JFK's Ghost is that there was a tremendous lobbying campaign uh, on the part of, first of all, Joseph Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's father, uh, who, along with Arthur Kroc, who just who had been a member of the Pulitzer Committee, himself, by the way, a re recipient of several Pulitzer Prizes. He was the New York Times journalist, um, and uh, he was the Washington Borough Chief uh, for the Times. And he lobbied very hard. I mean, by his own admission in his, in his uh, oral history and some other things that came out by his own admission, he lobbied, lobbied very hard on behalf of Joseph Kennedy and, uh, and of course, John F. Kennedy to get the Pulitzer Prize. It was clearly something the Kennedy family wanted, clearly something 
John F. Kennedy aspired to. In fact, he had told a friend in 1953, this is four years earlier, who was also a Pulitzer Prize winner, Margaret Coit, who run, won for a book about John C. Calhoun. He had told her when they were out together on a date that he would rather win a Pulitzer Prize than be president of the United States. Uh, so it was really important to, his, to him to, to win this thing. Where was John F. Kennedy at the time? What year did he win the prize? And where was his father? Uh, Kennedy, the book came out in early 1956. uh, And then Profiles in Courage was nominated the next year in 1957. In May of 57 is when the prize was given. So it had been out uh, well over a year. And uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, father was in New York at the time. Obviously, it was a it was a very uh, pleasant experience for the entire family, and uh, John F. Kennedy wore it as a badge of honor uh, for the rest of his life, and was very sensitive about any any thought that he may not have written the book. Just to put this on uh, on the record, there were eight senators who were profiled in the book: Daniel Webster, Thomas Hart Benton from Missouri, Sam Houston from Texas, Edmund Ross from Kansas. Lucius Lamar from Mississippi, John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, George Norris from Nebraska, and Robert A. Taft from Ohio. Have you read the book? Oh, yeah. I read it when I was a kid. My dad gave me a copy of it uh, back uh, probably about the time President Kennedy was elected. I was just a young boy. I still have that copy. It was a paperback version of it, uh, pocket books. But yes, I read the book when I was younger, to the extent that a a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old can, but then I've reread it over the years, and I did so again uh, with the writing of this uh, story. And, and what did you think of the people that John F. Kennedy picked to get uh, the profile and courage? Well, I don't know if it would fly today. I mean, three of the people uh, were involved with a, an act of courage that Kennedy highlights, and the act of courage was the support of the Missouri Compromise of 1850 and the strengthening of the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, And I can't imagine that that would be a popular stance today. And, and of course, the reason he he looked at their courage, the the thesis of the book was that he wanted to look for people who exhibited courage, that being defined by taking a stand, a political stand that was unpopular with their own base, their own political party. And so when Daniel Webster, who was from Massachusetts, for instance, uh, took a stand to help preserve the union, that was his act of courage, that was his motivation you know, a decade before the American Civil War, uh, it was an act of courage, at least in the writing of Profiles and Courage, to take a stand that would be that would be very, very unpopular in, in Massachusetts, of course. But the ironic thing is he wound up taking a stand that, that supported the extension and the reinforcement to a great extent of slavery. So um, he was talking about courage for courage's sake, but I mean, you could make that same case throughout history that there were a lot of people who exhibited a certain amount of courage, but was it in the pursuit of the right goal? And at the time, what impact did it have on John F. Kennedy's political ambitions? Oh, it had a tremendous impact on him. It, it gave him, I think, the one thing that he still needed. He was going to be running in 1960, foregone conclusion in 1956 and seven, uh, to be the successor to the oldest man, who had ever served in the presidency, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the great general of D-Day. And here was the to be the youngest man elected to the presidency. And so uh, it, it obviously, and he, and he had to sort of get away from the, the magazine cover, he and Jackie, you know, the glamorous couple, the beautiful people, the playboy image that he'd had prior to that. 
he wanted a certain amount of gravitas, and that uh, Pulitzer Prize indeed gave him that at a crucial period of time. So much that, and it's interesting, Brian, uh, the book came out in January of 56. John F. Kennedy tried in December of 55, just two or three weeks before the book came out, to lobby. In fact, he called his editor on Christmas Eve begging that maybe they could release it prior to the end of 1955 because then he could qualify for the Pulitzer uh, contention in 1956 as opposed to 1957. And when you think about it, had he won the Pulitzer Prize in May of 1956, this is right before the Democratic convention where he nearly became the vice presidential candidate uh, under Adlai Stevenson. And maybe the Pulitzer Prize would have made all the difference in that and he would have been the vice presidential candidate. So it was a very, very uh, a very, very important piece of the puzzle with Kennedy. When it was published, what was the reaction at the time and the reviews? It was repu- it was published to glowing reviews. There were very few contrarian voices. I cite a few in the book, but it was highly regarded. It was a very inspirational uh, piece of writing. I mean, it was highlighting political courage. The interesting thing about the timing of it is this is not long after the whole McCarthy episode in the, in the Congress and the Senate. And as you know, and others know, Jack Kennedy was the only Democrat not to go on the record uh, in the censure vote of Joseph McCarthy. He was having health problems, but he still could have managed to make his vote count. And so he was being uh, thought of as not a person of great courage himself. And so he wanted to write a book about courage to, I think, embolden his image. You mentioned Arthur Crock. Who was he and what impact did he have on the writing and the award? Arthur Kroc was a New York Times journalist, probably one of the most famous, well-known, highly regarded, won several Pulitzers, as I mentioned a moment ago, himself. He was the chief of the Washington Bureau for the New York Times for more than a decade. He had been on the Pulitzer Committee, uh, but he was also a good friend with John F. Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, and uh, he was paid uh, what is noted uh, to be $25,000 by Joe Kennedy to keep his name in the papers, and I got this from a uh, a book that was written a few years ago by Mark White, uh, who uh, annotates that particular payment. So he was a, a PR man on the side. I don't know. I, I wonder about the ethics of that now, but I think that was the way people probably did business back then and the rules by which they played. And he was an advisor to the Kennedy family, particularly uh, Joseph Kennedy. And when, when John F. Kennedy graduated from Harvard, he had written a thesis, his senior thesis that uh, Arthur Kroc edited and helped turn into a published book that came out in 1940 called While England Slept, and it became briefly a a bestseller. Uh, And so Kroc was involved in in literary efforts. He was involved in writing articles, ghosting things. He ghosted a book for Joseph Kennedy uh, in 1936 called I'm for Roosevelt, Uh, and it was written by Arthur Kroc. and, uh, And so he was involved quite often in, in Kennedy stuff, and he was a, a mover and shaker when it came to the Pulitzer Committee, of which he had been one time part of. Why did you want to write this? Well, I, I, I retired uh, as a minister after 40 years in Northern Virginia, and I, I had been writing for a long time, and I had the time and a few ghostwriting opportunities fell into my lap, and I did them, and I thought, this is an interesting retirement gig, and uh, so I started researching ghostwriting, and, and I, I've told people that it was like the uh, Seinfeld episode where uh, Kramer writes a coffee table book about coffee tables, that I decided to write a book about a ghostwriter, and this is a story that I fell on because it was a story I knew from my childhood, the book Profiles in Courage, and I thought it was intriguing, 
to try to really drill down and see what what the evidence was and uh, for who really wrote this book. How much evidence was there already? It was already there. It was hiding in plain sight. I mean, a lot of it's already been. I'm indebted to authors like Herbert Parmet and others. Uh, the struggles of of Jack Kennedy. I, I am in. You know, there are several people that have covered this ground. Even Chris Matthews in his book about Kennedy talks about it. Uh, but uh, there's never been a full length book on the subject, so that's what I wanted to do. But even at the Kennedy Library, and they were so gracious, the oral histories, there are so many there. The correspondence files between Ted Sorensen and John F. Kennedy, the back and forth, I mean, it's just, it's all there, hiding in plain sight, that Ted Sorensen wrote the entire first draft of the book with some help from a professor uh, at Georgetown named Jules Davids. Uh, and uh, he did uh, much of the work on it. He did much of the editorial work. At best, you could say that John F. Kennedy, he conceived of the idea. It was his idea. But um, he at best functioned as, as a, either a line editor uh, or even as an executive editor of the project. You say that Ted Sorensen, who came from Nebraska originally, uh, was the one that pushed George Norris, a senator from Nebraska, to be in the book, one of the eight. Why did he do that? And is that true? Yeah, uh, Nor- Norris was a Republican, of course, but he was a prov- progressive Republican. And uh, uh, Sorensen's father... Uh, had been an attorney general of the state of Nebraska, and they were big Norris people out in Nebraska, progressive Republican people. And so um, he really pushed uh, for Norris to be involved. Norris took some unpopular stands uh, as a Republican and as a Nebraskan back in the early part of the 20th century and then later on. And uh, so he he lobbied hard for that and uh, because he was doing the primary lion's share of the writing, uh, you know, uh, Kennedy, of course, acquiesced. You mentioned Jules, uh, David Jules. Who was he and what, what did he, what part did he play in this? Well, it's an interesting story that I developed. Jules Davids was a professor of, of politics, history, international relations at Georgetown. And uh, when John F. Kennedy and Jackie got married in 1953, they moved into the town home there in Georgetown, really in walking distance from the university. And uh, Jack Kennedy wanted Jackie to to maybe take a course or two to sort of broaden her horizons as the wife of a senator. Of course, he had further political uh, ambitions. And so she enrolled at a course in George at Georgetown that was taught by Dr. Davids. And so she was one of the few girls in the class. And uh, he had given a lecture on John Quincy um, on John Quincy Adams at one point uh, or John Adams at one point. And uh, this is all about the time that Kennedy was musing on this idea of, of courage and writing. It began as an idea for an article for a magazine. And Jackie Kennedy uh, saw her professor at the end of class one day and asked if he'd be willing to, to consult and help. And he did. He helped up with several chapters corresponding directly with, with Ted Sorensen back and forth and was paid $700 for his efforts. Do you have any idea how much Ted Sorensen made as, uh, you say, the ghostwriter? Yeah, uh, in today's dollars, and I lay this out in the book. Well, first of all, he had an arrangement prior to the writing book, because he was ghostwriting articles for uh, Kennedy, that he would get 50% of anything that Kennedy got for an article that was in his name for a magazine or whatever. That uh, arrangement uh, went into the project of Profiles in Courage, but then it started to total up to a lot of money, and uh, there was some fear on the part of some in the Kennedy family. I don't know so much John F. Kennedy, but certainly his father, who was a pragmatic 
tough-minded businessman, and uh, they actually made a special deal with Sorensen, the details of which are undisclosed, and there's no paper trail extant that we know of. But by anecdotal information, testimony from Jackie Kennedy, from Sorensen himself, and from some other sources, uh, it appears that over time, Ted Sorensen was compensated probably close to $1.2 or $1.3 million for his participation in this project, which, you know, anybody who gets that kind of money in today's uh, market, and, that, and those are in today's dollars, in today's market, and, and would say that I didn't write the book, it would come off a bit disingenuous. I think if you follow the money, uh, the anecdotes about the money, uh, Jackie Kennedy's even her own words about how much her husband paid him, it's very clear that he was paid a boatload of money, and uh, and therefore I think it, it, it added credence to the case that he was the ghostwriter of the book. Go back to the Pulitzer Prize for a minute. <clears throat> what do you think of it? What do I think of the Pulitzer Prize? Oh, I think it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing. I mean, it is uh, it is certainly I think anybody who writes a book and hears that they're in in contention for a Pulitzer, I think it's still carries a lot of weight today. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very important landmark prize. I don't know if it's quite uh, the luster that it once had. Back then, there were less awards, fewer awards, and so I think it was the gold standard. But I think, um, I think it's a worthy thing. The, the, the thing about Kennedy is not so much ghostwriting. I mean, politicians do it all the time. It's a very noble thing, quite honestly. It's very understood. But to receive and to accept a Pulitzer when the words, maybe the idea was yours and you edited and so forth, but it wasn't yours, that, that is the real problem in the story. Uh, the Pulitzer itself was the problem, not the fact that he had a book where he got a lot of help writing it. Uh, and, that, you know, I mean, I think he got a tremendous amount of help writing it. He was more of a helper than the writer. Uh, but the issue is, should he have received and should he have accepted the Pulitzer Prize? He was sensitive about that, by the way, to his dying day. I, years ago, I can remember in an interview, uh, Roger Ailes, who was a very controversial uh, man behind Fox News, told us in an interview that he would not allow his people at Fox to even submit for either a Pulitzer or an Emmy or any of those awards because he said the group was prejudiced against anything that they did from the beginning. The reason I mentioned is I got online and <clears throat> looked at the list of the board of the current Pulitzers. And uh, just take a minute to list them. Elizabeth Alexander, president of the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Nancy Barnes, senior vice president of National Public Radio. Robert Blau uh, from Bloomberg News. Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia. Catherine Boo, author and journalist. I think she's formerly of the Washington Post. Neil Brown, president of Pointer Institute. Dana uh, Kennedy, uh, the Pulitzer Prizes. She runs it for uh, the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Nicole Carroll, USA Today, Steve Call, the uh, dean of the Graduate School of Journalism, Gail Collins, a columnist for The New York Times, uh, John Dezanuski, vice president of the Associated Press, Stephen Engelberg of uh, the uh, ProPublica organization, Steve Hahn, a professor at New York University, Carlos Lazada at The Washington Post, uh, Amanda Marquez-Gonzalez of the Miami Herald, Emily Ramshaw, of the something called the 19th, David Remnick of the New Yorker and Tommy Shelby, uh, Caldwell Titcomb 
professor of African and African-American studies of philosophy at Harvard University. Um, I bring that up because you don't see anybody on that list that would even come close to being a so-called conservative journalist. Uh, <clears throat> what do you think? Nobody from National Review there. Huh? Um, and yeah, well, I think I, I think that's always been the case. First of all, it was always back in the day, even the year that Kennedy won, loaded up with people from Columbia University, New York Times, um, you know, the New York, uh, you know, elite, uh, so, so-called. So I, I wasn't familiar with Ailes comment, but he probably was in the context of, you know, they won't even look at this. That's the liberal elite, quote unquote. Um, I think that's probably not an unfair statement. Uh, and certainly in the books that they uh, award prizes to, uh, you know, they are books that are featured and more with a broad appeal to audiences, probably from a center-left perspective, if you want to put a political spin on it. Um, and so a diehard conservative uh, writer, you know, probably hard-pressed to, to be noticed because they wouldn't be just uh, judged by the style and by the content and by their use of language, but by the ideas they presented themselves. So I think it's always been that way. It's been much more of a literary prize for uh, people that uh, they want to highlight in the New York Times and the Columbia School of Journalism and so forth. Other people that you talk about in the book include Evan Thomas II, and you talked with Evan Thomas III, uh, who we know today, very visible, formerly of Newsweek, author of many books. Bring him in, both the uh, Evan Thomas number two and then Evan Thomas number three. Well, Evan Thomas II, now remember, this is the son of Norman Thomas, who was a longtime socialist candidate for president, very effective, very highly regarded uh, left uh, politician, Socialist Party. And Evan Thomas was his son, and he was one of the best editors in the country. He was working uh, at that time uh, when, when the Pulitzer, or when John F. Kennedy submitted the uh, profiles and courage uh, to the publisher. And he uh, basically edited the book, shepherded the book, championed the book. Uh, I mean, the publisher at first didn't really even want to, you know, want to publish the book. And, uh, and so Evan Thomas uh, really, really promoted it. I had the opportunity on several occasions to talk with Evan Thomas III. This is the son of, um, of uh, Evan Thomas. And he was really gracious. He actually helped me with a picture of his father for the book, uh, for which I'm grateful. And uh, but um, this is uh, the publisher was Harper and uh, Evan Thomas was a seasoned editor. Later on in life, he was the one who paid for the uh, the book about Stalin's daughter in the 60s. Uh, he also did books like The Day Kennedy, not, not Kennedy, but The Day uh, Lincoln was shot. Later on, he was involved in the death of a president with William Manchester, one of the great editors. In the middle part of the 20th century, a great family, and uh, and Evan Thomas III had great respect for his father, of course, and talked glowingly about him, uh, and it really made me acquainted with various things that I could use at Columbia University, where his papers were and some oral histories were about his father. Uh, and so I don't think there would have been a Profiles in Courage, uh, because Cass Canfield, who was the higher-up editor at Harper, didn't really want to publish the book, even though he was indirectly related to Jackie Kennedy. Uh, so, and it was really being pushed that way. But uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, Evan Thomas who really, really pushed and shepherded the book. There might not have been a book 
And you could make the case there might not have been a, some other things in Kennedy's career had he not had that book to make the extra punch, you know, for his political ambitions. I can't let it pass. Uh, in one of your conversations, I believe, with Evan Thomas III, uh, this has nothing to do with Provals and Curries. It has something to do with William Manchester's death of a president. And you quote this. You say that Jackie Kennedy leans over and whispers to my father, quote, I'm going to ruin you, unquote. Can you give us the backstory on that? Evan Thomas told me that verbatim. uh, And uh, what was the story was, you know, the Kennedys initially chose Manchester to write the definitive account of, of the assassination. But by the time the book came close to publishing, they didn't like what they saw. Uh, there were too many things they thought were unflattering to the to the Kennedy family, one of which was the interaction between Bobby Kennedy and then the new president, Lyndon Johnson. Um, and uh, so they, they really pushed back. They actually sued so that the book might not be published. It eventually was published with some concessions made by Manchester. So it was during all of this dynamic that was going on that there was this meeting uh, in Jackie Kennedy's apartment in Manhattan. Now, this is long after President Kennedy is assassinated. I think it's 1966 or seven, and uh, and it, it gets pretty um, heated. And at one point, uh, she is so upset with Evan Thomas uh, that she says, "Yeah, I will, I will ruin you." And uh, most people don't think of Jackie Kennedy uh, with those kind of uh, words or showing her teeth that way. But it was they were they were very emotional about it and. Uh, and uh, very much wanted to control the outcome uh, in a way that uh, was not really possible from a literary standpoint. Don Ritchie, uh, emeritus historian of the United States Senate, has a new book out called, I mean, not called, but it's about Drew Pearson. And in your book on Profiles and Courage, you tell the story of Drew Pearson and Mike Wallace and ABC. Please, uh, please tell us about it. Well, it's December of 1957. Mike Wallace uh, has a television show called The Mike Wallace Show. It's sponsored by Philip Morris. He's got a cigarette in his hand, sort of like Edward R. Murrow used to. And uh, his his guest on December the 7th, 1957, was Drew Pearson, who was just the number one columnist, really, in America at the time, but also someone who was known for, for controversy. Uh, and they got to talking about this, that, and the other thing, and uh, they... they started talking about Eisenhower's health. He'd had the heart attacks and the stroke. And uh, Pearson said something that you'd think would be the most important thing out of that interview. He said, this is in 57, within a year, he said, I believe that Eisenhower will step down as president and Richard Nixon will be the president of the United States, which you'd think that would be the most famous soundbite, tweetable moment, as we might call it today. But he went on, they began to handicap the 1960 campaign with Nixon as the GOP person, and then Kennedy, who was already then uh, the front runner for the nomination in 1960 for the Democrats. And Pearson unloaded and he said, well, he's had a great, I'm paraphrasing now, but he's had a great PR buildup, but it's, uh, he's quite a guy for someone who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book that was ghostwritten for him. Now, this is on national television for a book that was ghostwritten by him. And uh, Mike Wallace says, are you sure? Do you know that? He says, yes, I do. And he said, who ghost, who was the writer? And he says, well, I, the name doesn't come to me right now, but it was ghostwritten for him. And of course, um, that became a firestorm. And by the next, this, this is a Saturday night. And by the next Monday, uh, Kennedy was in his office with uh, his uh, father on the phone and the Washington fixer, Clark Clifford, the, the attorney across the way, trying to figure out strategy. 
And uh, the dad wanted to sue the guys, you know, and take them for all they got. ABC, Mike Wallace, Drew Pearson. Uh, but Clifford uh, calmed them down and said, you don't want a long protracted legal battle with discovery and all of that. And I don't think Jack Kennedy wanted that for sure. And they decided to go for a retraction, which they managed to negotiate uh, the next weekend. Why would Joe Kennedy take a chance on suing ABC Drew Pearson <clears throat> uh, for something that he knew uh, was, was true? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. First of all, I think he was very mercurial, and I think he was operating in the heat of the moment. He was used to getting things done his way, and he was a take no prisoners by all account, take no prisoners kind of guy. But uh, yeah, if that would have followed through, and to his credit, he did listen to Clark Clifford and did. He did calm down. And uh, if they would have gone into a legal battle, they would have had to produce all sorts of things. It would have been dragged out. It would have it would have become the story and it, it could have never been really put to bed like it was. So he listened finally to uh, Clifford in his recommendation. But that is a good question why he'd even want to sue in the first place. And one of the things that I wondered as I heard that is how much did Joe Kennedy actually know? about how the book was written. I mean, did he just trust it to Jack and didn't worry about the details? I think he may not have known the extent to which Sorensen was involved. How much uh, before Ted Sorensen died was he willing to admit about his role in uh, Profiles and Courage? Yeah, well, he died in 2010, I think, something like that. His last book that he wrote just shortly before he died, another book about Kennedy, a lot about Kennedy, called The Counselor, he hints and hints at it. Some of the interviews in his last year, he hints more and more. He never did, quote unquote, come clean about it. But it, it, there was part of him that wanted so much, I think, to tell the story. And he wanted people to know that he gave enough little hints and winks and breadcrumbs uh, that anybody wanting to research the story could find out. Um, and, uh, and by that time, of course, it, it was a non-story. Um, and because all the primary people except him were gone. Before we close uh, out, how, a couple questions about you. Uh, how long were you a minister, and what kind of a minister? I was a, a minister for 40 years, uh, and I was ordained Baptist, became non-denominational, sure, served a congregation in Fairfax, Virginia for 20 years, and other churches around the country before that, and, uh, and I retired in early 2019. When did you start? writing books? I, I began writing books about uh, maybe 10 years ago. My first book came out 10 years ago. It was called The Shooting Salvationist. I actually did a C-SPAN talk on it back then in 2011 about a, a minister in Texas who shot and killed a guy. Uh, and I've been writing articles. I wrote several books in conjunction with my ministerial work. I've written some novels, a uh, couple of screenplays, have some stuff being shopped in Hollywood. Um, and so I've been pretty involved in that. And now I'm doing it full time. I say full time. Uh, I'm not killing myself in the process. I'm retired, but I'm enjoying it immensely. And I'm doing some ghostwriting still and uh, have received a number of uh, inquiries about that. So that's good. Where are you from originally? I, I grew up in the Detroit area and uh, born in Dearborn, Michigan. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's my roots. Where were you educated? I was educated uh, in the ministry at a college in Springfield, Missouri, a Baptist college there. And then I also went to Long Island University and the State University of New York, a degree in history at one and poli-sci in the other, master's in poli-sci. On this book on Profiles and Courage in <clears throat> JFK, 
where was the best source for you? You mentioned uh, Mr. Parmet earlier, but where was the best source that you found on your own uh, for the information you needed to write the book? Yeah, if anybody uh, wants to read a, another book that, that deals with this, Parmet's book, To the Struggles of Jack Kennedy, I guess it was, uh, in the 70s, tremendous book. Uh, that was a tremendous resource uh, for me on this. Uh, and uh, he opened me to other sources, but also the Kennedy Library itself. They've, they've got a tremendous amount of resources. The oral histories are fantastic uh, because if people will take time to wade through them, there's so much there, so much local color. Uh, about this uh, fascinating guy, Kennedy, who, who, by the way, still is one of my heroes, even though I make the point that he may not have been the writer of the book. <laughs> so how sensitive uh, is the Kennedy family today about who wrote this book? Uh, I haven't experienced that personally, but I will tell you that by all accounts, they're very sensitive uh, because, um, you know, we look at uh, President Kennedy in hindsight through the prism of how he died. And I think everything he did before that is tempered by how he died. And, and we're hard-pressed to really be critical. But there, he was a flawed man. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. And he played by the rules of, of the game that he inherited in his time. Um, I, I think he would do things probably different uh, if he were alive in the same age today. I would think. I would certainly hope. Um, but I, I'm sure that there'll be some pushback at various times from people. I mean, I have a Facebook page and other things. I see some comments on the page, you know, shame on you for, you know, and your publisher for perpetuating this hoax that he didn't write the book. Well, these are people that have never actually read anything on it and quite frankly, don't really know what they're talking about. Published by uh, Lions Press, the book's title is JFK's Ghost. And our guest has been David R. Stokes. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.